Welcome, everybody, to Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 10. We're kicking off the new season strong. Uh, and as I like to do, uh, I would like to give you some just inspirational stuff in the beginning, things that have been percolating in my mind, things that I find super interesting um, and that have touched me uh, in my life recently. Um, and have good news also is that, as some of you may already know, we're going to be beginning uh, the study of the Zohar itself uh, tonight. And I'm hoping that we could get through a lot of it, uh, you know, together. We'll, maybe we'll skip around if we need to, but um, Dr. Nash is here, our uh, resident scholar, and we have a, a lot of interesting things coming up, and it's very exciting for me to be able to sink my teeth into this stuff. And uh, we have a pretty good translation from the Pritzker edition. Um, hey, no way, Baruch Haba. I know you're going somewhere else, no worries. Don't worry. Don't worry. You go, I would go to Bert too if I were here. I'll see you. Thank you, brother. Enjoy. So uh, I think it's amazing to have this Pritzker edition. It has a translation plus a commentary, and it explains a lot of deep ideas within this. So let's start off with some of the Eastern stuff, and then we'll make our way to the Zohar. So I recently read a paper uh, talking about this, the following question, which is, what is the difference between mysticism or the mystical experience, and the psychotic experience. I'm not sure if I mentioned this in a previous podcast, um, but to me, this is such an interesting topic because it's like, how do I distinguish between if I'm losing my mind or if I'm you know, losing my mind in a good way? And Exactly. Is there really even one? And sometimes you see these people, it looks like they're having a great time. They look like they're communicating with some kind of higher being. So the paper that I read, it had something to do with the idea of transliminality. You could type that in on, on Google. Um, and it's this idea that bottom line, they analyzed uh, a psychologist who had had a mystical experience versus a psychologist who had had schizophrenia and then returned from that state. Um, and by analyzing their different accounts of their experiences, they came up with the following idea that I thought was so profound, which is that a strong ego is one that's capable of letting go of itself. That this is the idea of ego strength. If you have ego strength, you're more likely to be a person that is going to more easily trust the universe. And once you trust the universe enough to be able to let go, you're more likely to have a pleasant mystical experience. But if you have a weak ego, if you don't have a well-defined sense of self, you're going to be kind of waiting in the darkness. You're not going to be able to have any footing almost. And you're going to be so lost that you're scared. Your ego gets afraid and it starts clinging at random things. And it starts becoming very self-referential and paranoid. Uh, so it's the difference between all is meaning, they would say, versus, which is a nice mystical idea. Versus everything has a specific, unique meaning towards my ego, including street signs and numbers that I see. That's where it starts getting paranoid and schizophrenic. Um, so a person who's actually stronger, and this came to me as very ironic, because the Eastern stuff that we often discuss is, you, could, might, you might see it wrongly as poo-pooing the ego, as putting it down and saying, oh, we shouldn't have an ego. And the ego removes us from the mystical experience. But in reality, there's an irony here, which is, if you have a strong and well-developed sense of self, you're more likely going to be able to shuttle yourself into the mystical experience. I just felt almost like I would be remiss if I didn't tell you guys that uh, because 
this is a mistake that we could very easily make otherwise. Um, and now I want to share with you uh, the ending of the book that I was quoting so often last semester called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, which had 101 uh, stories from Zen. And in addition, it had a bunch of other stories uh, from later on. And it, it, to me, this, this book has so much depth to it. And I want to keep coming back to it later on in my life because there's certain things that you can experience while listening to this stuff that'll blow your mind. So, uh, you know, stay tuned for hopefully more stuff from here. But here's the ending of, of uh, this book. What is Zen? Try if you wish. But Zen comes of itself. True Zen shows in everyday living. Consciousness in action. More than any limited awareness, it opens every inner door to our infinite nature. Instantly, the mind frees. How it frees. False Zen racks brains as a fiction concocted by priests and salesmen to peddle their own wares. Look at it this way. Inside out and outside in. Consciousness everywhere. Inclusive through you then you can't help living humbly in wonder. So that's the first part. I thought that was so deep. Inside out, outside in, it's continuous. And your awareness is not stuck inside. It includes the outside and the inside. <clears throat> and once you see that, the real you sees that, that's immediate Zen. That's quick Zen. Um, and be careful not to go in the direction of, looking at Zen as these, these rules of how you have to live and being moralizing at you in certain ways, like other religions, that's not what it is. It's more like we say, spiritual ophthalmology, seeing clearly. So here's the second part. What is Zen? One answer. Anayat Khan tells a Hindu story of a fish who went to a queen fish and asked, I have always heard about the sea, but what is this sea? Where is it? The queen fish explained, you live, move, and have your being in the sea. The sea is within you and without you. And you are made of sea. And you will end in sea. The sea surrounds you as your own being. Another answer. That's how it ends. Right? So I, I'm, I'm listening to this on my audio book. And I'm like, all right, what's the next answer? Silence. And that hit me so hard because that is the real answer of what Zen is. You can say all the words in the world, but none of them will do justice to what Zen is, which is just. Didn't we have this before, this concept of silence? Definitely. We've definitely brought this up 100% before. Um, but I, I think this was a really profound way of them getting this across to me. Uh, but we could even kind of look at what, what is, you know, I think uh, David Foster Wallace has that famous speech. Joe Trico loves to quote it. And uh, that famous speech uh, of the, the fish are looking at each other and, they're, and they hear something about somebody's talking about water, water, water. They say, the older, fish. You know, the older fish are talking about water. And they're like, what the hell is water? <laughs> <laughs> and David Foster Wallace, is, his main thesis in his speech is, this is water. Right here, right now, flowing through you, this is the fluid water of our lives. And it's 
the way that Alan Watts would say it is you're it. Whatever it is, that's you. You're not stuck in this body and this in this particular awareness. Really, you are much more expansive. But like I said, the words are nice, but that silence is the best. Um, so something yeah. I'm thinking is, um, so I was reading that book, Homo Mysticus, by mm-hmm. Rabbi Faur, and he speaks it mostly, and it's a commentary on Anandam's uh, guide to the perplexed, and he's talking a lot about the ineffable, and mm-hmm. how words, uh, in a way, put a box around it, if you say Hashem is black, that means he's by default not white. Mm-hmm. And so words can't really, you know, do exactly. It. And so something that I realized is that's why when we say Damida, we say Hashem, and they say, you know, Monai, and they say Kapoz. And I think that's sort of like uh, reminiscent of the idea of like, okay, nothing I can say will do it justice. Yes. And so let me take the silence of it, you know, ineffable. And then, okay, but I'll try. Aywa. So wait, you, what was the part before that you said there was a specific pasuk that alluded to this silence or was just, because I'm thinking of lecha dumiya tehila. That's a very famous exactly one. That. And that's that, that same idea that even though I can't speak, that's kind of like that, that feeling. So now that the rabbi is here, I asked him to come because uh, we're going to now sink our teeth into the Zohar. Um, so I would love to hear from the rabbi, whatever comments or that he has. So I, I sent to to you, Mickey, I think if you want to, if you want to forward to Victor and Bela, uh, if you want to follow along on your phone, you can. Um, I'll forward to you the PDF um, of the Zohar. Let me send it to you. Here we go. I'm sending it to you on WhatsApp. So if you guys go to Hakdamat Sefer Hazar, Zohar, um, it's on page 84. Um, you could type in in the search, Rabbi Hezkiah opened. So right now we, we, we've been discussing Kabbalah last semester, the previous semester, a lot. Um, and we've discussed different schools of thought within Kabbalah. But, and we've had some you know, allusions and references to the Zohar, but never have we actually looked at the Zohar Alpiya Seder. And that's what I want to do with you guys tonight is I want to actually... Take a look. And what is this book trying to teach us? What is it talking about? So we'll start, of course, with the Hakdama, with the introduction. We'll see what sense we can make of it. And you'll see there's going to be little uh, numbers throughout. And these numbers are endnotes that are commentaries to try to explain to us what's going on. And uh, they're actually super helpful. So we'll start off with the first paragraph. Rabbi Hizkiyah opened. Like a rose among thorns, so is my beloved among the maidens. That's, of course, from Shir Hashirim, from Song of Songs. Who is a rose? Knesset Israel, Assembly of Israel. And that's a loving way of talking about Bene Israel, almost like the wife of God, right? For there is a rose, and then there is a rose. Just as a rose among thorns is colored red and white, so Assembly of Israel includes judgment and compassion. And immediately, a light bulb goes off in our heads. Oh, judgment and compassion. I know those as two of the most important sefirot. Um, Just as a rose has 13 petals, so Assembly of Israel has 13 qualities of compassion surrounding her on every side, right? The Yagmidot. So we'll discuss all this in depth the 13 qualities of, uh, and attributes that God reveals to Moses when? After he asks God to show him his glory. 
And God says, I can't show you my, my front. I'll show you my back. And then Moses has this immediate light bulb moment. Aha! And he bows before God and he says, please forgive them because they're a stiff-necked nation, because of what they're lacking. It's almost like he learned something about God's compassion. And then God reveals to him, Hashem, Hashem, God is everlastingly um, merciful. Similarly, from the moment Elohim, God, is mentioned, it generates 13 words to surround Knesset Israel, Assembly of Israel, and protect her. Then it is mentioned again. Why again? To produce five sturdy leaves surrounding the rose. So what's going on here is they're counting the words between when it says the word God or Elohim in the text, from the first one to the second one, 13 words in between. In Bereshit. Right, but Elohim at the So between the first and the second is 13 words. Between the second and the third is five words. All right, so why again to produce five sturdy leaves surrounding the rose? So the 13 words represented the 13 attributes of God, and the five words in between the second and third appearances of God's name represented. Uh, these five sturdy leaves surrounding the rose, and we'll see what that means according to the, the uh, interpretation and the commentary. These five are called salvation. They are five gates. Concerning this mystery, it is written, I raise the cup of salvation. Right? I raise this cup of salvation. So somehow this has to do with these five gates that are hidden in between the second and third names of God. This is the cup of blessing, which should rest on five fingers, right? When you hold a cup, you're holding it in, on your one hand with five fingers and no more. Like the rose sitting on five sturdy leaves, paradigm of five fingers. Uh, this rose is the cup of blessing. So now, initially, it, was, it started off the paragraph, what is this rose? This rose is Israel. But now it's saying, okay, what else is this rose? This rose is the cup of blessing. So when I read this, I don't know if, if you've ever thought of it like this, but I see it as like, that we should be a blessing. Our job as Israel in the world is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to be a blessing unto the world. And now this is saying, we are a cup of blessing to the world. That's kind of how I read it. So we could look at, yeah. Israel is a key word in the Zohar. Mm. Does not refer to Bnei Israel. It refers to the Shekhinah. Oh, really? Okay. Thank you. See, this is why we need the rabbi here. <laughs> so the rabbi said that Knesset Israel actually re uh, re uh, represents the Shekhinah, and you know, I got confused about that because later on, it does it makes that more explicit. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering, all right, so which is it? Is it Israel, or is it the Shekhinah? Is it that lowest level of the divine, or is it Israel? Um, so the rabbi saying it's actually the divine itself. Okay, so the the Shekhinah, the divine presence, is what's being hinted at when it talks about this this rose between uh, and that's you know that has these thirteen attributes, which makes more sense, and that's surrounding Israel. Uh, okay, so let's see. Sorry, no problem. I was on page eighty four, I believe. And now we, if you click that number one, you go to page 373. Oh, so I clicked it. So now what do we see? It can mean lily or lotus, um, but the Rabbi Hazkiah probably has in mind a rose. 
So uh, skip to number two. Um, uh, assembly of Israel. Okay, so in rabbinic Hebrew, this phrase denotes the people of Israel. Okay, the Midrash on the Song of Songs describes an allegorical love affair between the maiden, the earthly community of Israel, and her lover. Shira Shirim uh, does the same thing. In the Zohar, Knesset Israel can refer to the earthly community, but also often primarily to the Shekhinah, like the rabbi was saying. That it doesn't have to refer to Israel, it could also be referring to the part of God that is dwelling with Israel. The divine feminine counterpart of the people, the aspect of God most int intimately connected with them. The lovers in the Song of Songs are pictured as the divine couple, Tiferet and Shekhinah. So this is probably one of the most common motifs in the whole uh, of Zoharic literature and in uh, Kabbalah, is this relationship between Tiferet and Shekhinah. And I think another name for Tiferet is Yesod, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe, sorry, is... Uh, no. Yesod is... is uh... Yesod is the ninth one. Tiferet is above, in the middle. Okay, I'm sorry. Yesod is, uh, yeah, is, is Sadiq, uh, yeah. Phallus, Joseph, Covenant, Foundation. By the way, Elohim... Is Malchut, Binah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Elohim is Binah. Different. Okay. So, so when they we're talking about Elohim, that's actually Binah. And they're saying that the, the blessings come from Peter, which is the top, Yes. Dubina, and then goes down to all the way to Shekhinah or Malchut, whatever you want to say. Okay, so Shekhinah and Malchut are different ones. No, they're the same thing. Shekhinah same. and Malchut okay, are the that's same. That's what I was getting to. So Malchut and Shekhinah are the same, and that's like the receptive feminine yeah. part. Yes. And Tiferet is the male part, but it's different than Yesod. No, Tiferet is not the male part. Yesod is the male part. Yesod is the male part. Oh, Tiferet and Yesod are both male parts. Sorry. Ah, okay. So Tiferet is above Yesod, but Tiferet is still the yeah, air. There we go. I, I need this picture next to me. Thank you. You so need much. the diagram. <laughs> yes, yes. So if you guys could pull up a diagram, you can. So I see now. Tiferet almost is part of the torso, but it's still somehow has direct uh, relationship with Malchut, also known as Shekhinah. That's what it is. And Yesod as well, thank you so much, Maggie. Yesod as well has that relationship with Shekhinah. So bottom line, um, this idea of Knesset Israel, this uh, one who gathers up Israel, really is deeply referring to the lowest level of the Sefirot, which is Malchut or Shekhinah, the, the, the divine presence. So we mentioned this, this rose with the red and the white. So what is that? Um, it's also called Rosa Gallica Versicolor, also known as Rosa Mundi, one of the oldest striped roses. Um, so here they just talk a little bit about the botany of it, which we have to get into. Um, but the, the interestingly, elsewhere, the Zod alludes to the process of distilling oil from the petals of the flower to produce rose water, Mizahar, a popular remedy. During this process, the color gradually changes from red to white. So I don't know if there's any importance to that, but maybe is something. Is red like the Shekinah? Wow. Interesting. So. That's one so thing. That's Kabbalistic, and the way you hold the cup is that. Is you know, mm -hmm. palm, that's yes, I've fingers, seen that. Yes, okay, that makes more sense. I've always seen that. I'm like, that's not a very smart way to hold the cup. You're gonna spill it. That's very funny. Very interesting. 
Okay. And then the other question is this idea of the, if it, it being like a remedy in the ancient world, maybe there's something to that. Maybe this idea of the Shekhinah healing Israel. I don't know if that, if I'm reading too far into it, um, but it seems like the rose water is, uh, is somehow being alluded to here. And that's, I think that's what Pritzker is trying to say. Um, 13 petals, 13 qualities of compassion. So a rose blossom can have 13 petals in its second tier. In rabbinic tradition, God's 13 attributes of compassion are derived from Exodus 34. Um, according to Kabbalah, these qualities originate in Ketet, like Dr. Nasser was saying. Um, the highest sefira, the realm of total compassion, untainted by judgment. Um, so it seems like everything is starting off from Ketet. And there's this whole question I remember from a couple of semesters ago. Is Keter actually God itself? Or is Keter uh, separate from God? Is it like an emanation? And it's almost unclear that Keter is, is almost uh, transluminal. And we're, and we're not quite sure uh, what, what Keter is, but it's, a, it's the highest of the 13, of the 10 sefirot. Um, it's so, also known as Ain. As Ain, exactly. Yeah, yeah. As nothingness. And that's the whole irony. Is it there? Is it not there? Is it God? Is it not God? And we we have this idea of yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. And if God always was, then God must have been that nothing as well. Uh, and by the way, the Eastern guys say exactly that. Um, so the, the, the idea here seems to be all of these qualities and all these emanations, all these numbers are coming really from the one, from the keter, from that crown. Um, and that's the realm of total compassion untainted by judgment. So that's interesting. To me, that says that that's totally dominated by the feminine and there's no masculine there. Does that make sense? Because it's saying that is a realm that is totally untainted by judgment and it's full on compassion. What does that mean? Yeah, so it's not even yet male, female. So it's it's it precedes the male, female. But for some reason, it's described here as fully compassionate. That's the, the well, it's, giving, so. it's giving. Yeah. In a way it's like, it's almost like a mother to the rest of the Sifirot. Um, but it could also be like the, the, the male as well, I guess, giving the same way uh, the male gives. So well, the, male, the second Sifirot is male and the third is female. Okay. Second Sifirot is male. Third is female. Yes. Baruch Baruch. I can't believe that this is amazing to, to have you. Baruch What a pleasure. Um, so we were just talking about Keter being that, that central one on top. Next one, Elohim, God is mentioned. The divine name Elohim, God, refers here to Bina, the divine mother. So I'll, I'll pull up uh, here again uh, what that is. But now we, we finish with Keter, which is the one that's, that it's starting off from. And then now it goes to uh, the, the left side, which is, uh, I think, the, the feminine side, or Bina. And Elohim is referring to that. So it's the divine mother. Between its first and second occurrences in the opening verses of Genesis, there are 13 words, which allude to the 13 qualities of compassion originating in Keter, emanating from Binah, and surrounding the rose of Shekhinah. So it's originating in Keter. It's housed by the mother, Binah. And that's what Elohim is. Elohim is that second sefirah that's bringing forth Everything in creation. And that's what that's what's denoted by Bina or Elohim. Uh, 
Um, interesting. And then finally, it's surrounding the rows of Shekhinah. Baruch Abba ID. Sorry for the, the early start. So we, we started talking about the... Uh, yeah, the, I, I'm sorry. I, I just saw that now, and I have to get off at 9. And I no thought worries. I was sitting upstairs for a half hour, and then I looked at my phone. It was five. It said you started at 8, but anyway. No worries at all. Listen, you, you came perfect timing. We're right in the thick of it. So we're talking about these this idea of the 10 sefirot, these 10 emanations of God. Just to very briefly summarize, everything you could look up if you want a diagram, everything's starting off from that that top uh, that top sefirah, which is keter, um, and which which is almost like, is this part of God? Is it not part of God? And from this crown of God, everything else is emanating forth towards the other sefirot, uh, towards this mother bina, and then it's surrounding. Uh, the, uh, the 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 Shekhinah, the, which is also known as the rose, according to the the text. So it's very cryptic, uh, but it started off with um, Israel is like this rose surrounded by thorns, and really the rose is a uh, connotation of uh, this Shekhinah, this divine presence. So between the first Elohim, second Elohim, thirteen words. Those are the thirteen attributes of God. Now, second and third, we have the five sturdy leaves. The leaves of rose, of rose plants grow in clusters of five, nine, or 13 leaves. Uh, so that's interesting. And between the second and third occurrences of Elohim in Genesis are five words, like we said, alluding to five divine leaves. The five sefirot emanating from Binah and transmitting the flow to Shekhinah. Um, so right now, this it's very clear that these sefirot, Sorry, yeah, they come from Bina, and then they go to Shekhinah. Um, those are the, the five sefirot in between Bina and Shekhinah. So the top one is En Sof. Yes. The bottom one is Shekhinah. Oh, so when you were saying En, it's also En Sof. Yeah, En Sof. Uh, but the bottom one is Malchut. Bottom one is Malchut and Shekhinah. It's the Shekhinah. And so between En Sof to Shekhinah, which is Hashem's involvement mm. with Israel. There's these, it says these six of Bidot, but then the mother one is saying is Binah. Ah, Binah so there's, there's six in between, but really Binah is considered like the mother, and the other five is hinted to, but because there's only five words in between the second and third uh, Elohims in the text. So it's pretty deep stuff, uh, but you could kind of see where it's coming from and, and uh, the structure they're trying to build. So obviously, just as a side note, you don't have to think of this as absolute, you could think of it as relative but a way towards reaching the absolute in terms of your meditation or your understanding of these deep ideas. Um, so what are these sefirot? What are the five sefirot in between Bina, the mother, and Shekhinah, the divine presence? The five sefirot are Hesed, Gevurah, Tiferet, including Yesod, Netzach, and Hod. Um, so Hesed is loving kindness, literally, Givura is strength, Tiferet is beauty, Yesod is the foundation, also known as the divine phallus, Netzach and Hod, Netzach is like everlastingness, and Hod is glory. Um, and obviously this stuff seems very out there right now, but as we go along in the text, we'll start to understand more and more about what this is saying. Um, so salvation, we said that this, this rose is compared, we say, Kosh, Kosh, Yeshua, Desab, Shem, I, I lift up this 
this uh, cup of salvation. We're comparing the rose to the cup of salvation. Uh, so here it says, the flow of emanation saves the rose of Shekhinah from the demonic thorns surrounding her. So somehow, this emanatory flow of God's energy is saving the divine presence the, or the lowest level of the Sefirot the Shekhinah from the thorns, which are like Sitra Ahra, these demonic energies that are surrounding the Shekhinah. So constantly, this lowest level of God's emanations is in need of a divine energy to protect it from the demonic thorns that might be threatening towards it. Um, and it's also comparing these five sefirot to five gates. Let's see number eight. Five gates by which one enters the divine realm. Ah, so now it's telling us something very interesting. It seems these particular five sefirot are five gates towards entering the divine realm. And tiferet and yesod are included in this, under the same umbrella. But somehow we'll see later on how this might act as, a, as some kind of gate towards the divine. Um, a cup of blessing on five fingers. What does that mean? According to the Talmud, the cup of wine is held in the right hand during the blessing after food. And you'll see during Havdalah, people are holding it, like you said, with their palm well, under the cup. Actually, I'll say that we, we mentioned this before, but uh, the, the underlying idea of Kabbalah, they said, is to study and yeah. and specifically to do so on Shabbat. And we're seeing a lot of parallels here between the rituals we do on Shabbat mm -hmm. with this opening. Wow. That's, it's not really Havdalah that we say, really, we say that during Kiddush mm -hmm. and etc. And, and I think it's going to continue. Uh, maybe with that motif of like, you know, we say Yes Amazing, wow, that has a lot to do with Shabbat You're 100% right, because we're going to see That it's going to compare It's going to go through a lot of these words in a pasuk And it's going to compare each It's going to break it down into seven And the seventh one is going to be compared to Shabbat So it's exactly what you said Tov, uh, tov kivanta, as they say um, Let's see uh, Second paragraph of the Haknama. From the second Elohim till the third, five words appear. Like we said, from here on, light created, concealed, contained in the covenant, right? So somehow this light of God is being, right? So when it says, uh, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, where was this contained? It was contained in the berit, in the covenant, entering the rose, emitting seed into her. So the rose of the Shekhinah is the divine mother as well, similar to Bina, and it's receiving that seed of the divine light. This is the tree bearing fruit with its seed in it. When it says that God created that God is creating a tree with its seed in it, it's actually referring to Shekhinah as well, which is compared to uh, this tree. That seed endures in the actual sign of covenant. Just as the image of the covenant is sown in 42 couplings of that seed, so the engraved explicit name is sown in 42 letters of the act of creation. So let's see what this is talking about, because this is pretty deep. But it has something to do with the, the 42-letter name of God. Um, so, and, and some will say, like we'll see, that it's referring to the first 42 letters of 
the Torah, from the Bet of Bereshit uh, to the Bet of Bohu. So we'll see that in a minute. Light created and destroyed. Um, Rabbi Al-Azhar says in Masechet Hagiga 12a, which is right before talking about uh, Pardes, the four people that went into the paradise, which we've discussed at length, I actually taught it two Shabbats ago in Alanhurst, um, with the light created by the blessed, blessed one, holy be he, on the first day, one could gaze and see from one end of the universe to the other. So it's saying with that light that God created in the very beginning of creation, a person could have the perspective of the entirety of the universe. So this is incredible because that's and through time. Also through time. Through time. Exactly. So through space time. Right. So that's the utmost of the mystical experience. You talk about somebody peeking on the biggest psychedelic ego death probably has something to do with having this, such an expansive perspective that you're able to look at everything in creation in space and time and when it says god created the light that's what it's talking about yeah i think yes exactly and he's telling him moses i'm sorry honey you're not going to be able to live and see that you fundamentally your ego needs to die in order to see that and probably also you will actually physically need to die in order to get the full glimpse of what God is seeing at all times, which is everything in space time, all at once, all the time. It's like that movie, everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so when the blessed Holy one foresaw the corrupt deeds of the generation of the flood and the generation of the dispersion, he immediately hid it from them. He hid this light as it is written. The light of the wicked is withheld as it says in Eov, uh, from whom, sorry, for whom did he hide it? Who is God hiding this unbelievable perspective of light, of everything in space-time all at once? For the righteous in the time to come, or haganuz Sadikim. We all learned that in first grade, I'm sure. Maybe not the Barkai guys, you got everyone here. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I learned it in first grade, Mag and David. Um, that's uh, the pros and cons of, of going to Barkai. Um, yeah, that was a pro, right? Yeah, that, exactly. I guess now you'll, you'll be blown away by it at this age. It's good. It's, for, for me, it's like, yeah, I heard this already. Um, so elsewhere, the Midrash links the hidden light with Psalms. Light is sown for the righteous. Uh, okay, so amazingly, it's continuing to emphasize this idea that this light, this divine light, is something that you can see if you are fully righteous and if you follow in whatever divine life that you can uh rabbi hizkiya now specifies where the primordial light was concealed so this light of god where is it hidden in the covenant in the berit itself wow what does that mean ah what is covenant what is berit a hint to which is a name for the sefira of yesod the divine phallus Somehow, which makes sense, right? Because berit milah, where do you get the berit milah? Over there. And when it says by Abraham Avinu, where is he putting his hand? He's putting his hand on his phallus because in those, Joey Miz taught me this. In those days, that, that was the, the holiest thing they had was their berit milah. So when you put your hand, it's like putting your hand on the Torah. 
today we have to say Avdil, but in those days they had that perspective of like this is a holy thing. And it's something Ronnie Bennett taught me, just like uh, the, the Bene Israel are passing through the, the split sea, it's compared in Tehillim to the sperm passing through the Berit, through the covenant of the Berit Milah. So when you circumcise your son, you're guaranteeing that his child will pass through the covenant. Just like we passed through the Gezarim Ha'ele in the Yamsuf, and Abraham Avinu passed through the split animals during Berit Ben Abetarim. It's all connected. So that's everything that's hidden in this idea of the phallus being the Berit. And somehow the light is hidden there. Now, you want to... Uh, for, yeah, for, <laughs> exactly. I hope they didn't teach you that. Um, so it's... it's <laughs> of course, it's the, the side of the circumcision. Yesod is also known as righteous, right? Sadiq Yesod Olam. And Yosef HaSadiq is, is, is the one that's affiliated with this uh, Sefira. Why? Because he didn't sleep with Eshet Potiphar. Because he withheld his yesod, his phallus, from the person that it wasn't supposed to go to because she was married. And he didn't break the covenant. And that way, their covenant of marriage, he didn't break. Um, so it's really so deep and so interesting. Um, the, the question that I have is, what else is, is, is reflected in the physical? So people talk about having sex and that being a peak experience. Well, you don't have to go that far. You don't have to actually say that that's the only way to have a peak experience. But the it seems like the mystical experience is so pleasurable that the, the best kind of analogy that we have in the physical realm is when a person is climaxing. And that's, you know, if we were uh, kind of able to, you know, take away a lot of the societal associations that we have of sex being something that's taboo, we could start thinking of it it's like, yes, that makes sense. It's almost an orgasmic experience to merge with God. So to me, that's I see all that stuff here. Um, and the light of God is hidden there. Um, and that's the feeling of like, wow, I'm, I'm fully connected with God. Just like when you're in bed and you feel fully connected to your wife or your husband. And, and it's like an unbelievable experience to feel larger than yourself. Which is a very Jonathan Hyde idea. I understand, um, but what about women who don't have a phallus? Yeah, they don't have this um, holy place. So no, so God forbid, I would never say that. It's a very good question. I think it's it's a metaphor. I think it's trying to explain, like, okay, what is this experience like? So for the woman, her her uh, experience would would probably be the same kind of thing when when a woman is climaxing, she's able to have this experience. But at the same time, these divine emanations and these sefirot are only hints at what's going on in the divine realm. And I think 100% it's, it's not to be taken literally. And of course, 100% women can have these types of mystical experiences and these connections with God. is a it's fantastic question. Yeah, exactly. A perfect yeah. point. Well, even everyone has these all of these exactly. the feminine the masculine like the, the divine that we're talking about. exactly like that's that's it's everybody you know everybody has the masculine and feminine parts of themselves in a spiritual sense mm -hmm. that's what he's saying and even a woman would have a divine phallus yeah as, as weird as that might sound yeah no it was it was i think you, you got the point across I have to say it, it was 
That was great. <laughs> I also do have a question. Though. Please, yeah. The, the light, like the, the, this light of God that we're talking about, and then like even like you know Moshe, he's asking for it, and the guy's like, no, like is it even something to chase? Like what? Why even learn about it if it's not something to chase? It's a great question. You know, like just like like with uh, with sex, you know, you're not trying to really chase it. Mm -hmm. You're not trying, you know, that's like kind of uh, pollutes. But maybe you know, like it's something that comes, like like. Like, oh, it's something that's going to come to you when your ego dies or, uh, yeah. you know, like. Uh, and that's a lot of the Zen stuff is you can't force it. Like we started the class off with. Exactly. So like, but like here in the, in the, we're learning and like, they're talking a lot about it. Like, are they chasing it? Are they trying to learn about it? What is the actual point? Fantastic question. So what I think, what I'll say is, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm reading now Carlos Castaneda's amazing book. My rabbi in Israel recommended I listen to it or that I read it. I'm listening to it on Audible. It's called Tales of Power. And it's about this guy that, you know, is in the desert in New Mexico and he's being taught by his guru almost how to be a warrior in a spiritual sense, how to be like a sorcerer almost. And one of the messages that he teaches him is that it's okay to set an intention in a certain way and allow yourself to head towards that intention. And I think that, you know, in the GPS. Yes. And then like, it's not really a direct route, exactly and I'm, putting it in GPS. exactly and i'm reading tick not han as well and he says in in the, the diamond that cuts through illusion which is like a very buddhist thing is that the best wish that you can have is the wish to merge with everything and you should have that wish mm -hmm. so there's almost like a paradoxical element to it like don't desire but you should desire to have no desires yeah that you can't get around it you know you have to the, the words can only go so far but it's okay to have that intention but eventually let go of everything yeah let go of letting go also sure. you know but I, you're fully monkeying out you're not going to be there 24/7. exactly exactly because it's it's not enough to just say oh i'll be zen by just being whatever i'm doing no 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 you have to do something yeah that's what i would that's the best i could say but fantastic question um okay so elsewhere, the Midrash links the hidden light with Psalms. Light is sown for the righteous in Psalms 97. Rabbi Hezkiah now specifies where the primordial light was concealed. In the covenant, which is a name for the Sefer Yesod, the righteous false, the divine false, we said, side of the covenant of circumcision, Yesod, also known as Sadiq. Tree bearing fruit. The tree symbolizes male divinity. Okay, interesting. Um, the idea of Putting the seed, the idea of, you know, yes, exactly. Idea. The tree is providing the seed exactly to the Shekhinah, which is receiving it. Uh, the ineffable name is the ex explicit name, is the ineffable name, Yodke Vavke. Uh, that was number 12, talking about um, the engraved explicit name is sown in 42 letters of the act of creation. So somehow the name Yodke Vavke is hidden in the 42 letter name of God. What does that mean? 13, 42 couplings, 42 letters of the act of creation. The 42-letter name is mentioned in the name of Rav, though not recorded in Masechet uh, Kiddushin. So according to one later view, it consists of the first 42 letters of the Torah from the Bet of Bereshit through the Bet of Bohu, void. So somehow from Bet to Bet of Bereshit to Bohu, is these 42 letters that might be having something something to do with the 42-letter name of God. Uh, so that's interesting. But the real question is, all right, how do you make Yod Kevavke into 
uh, 42-letter name of God, which seems to be what the text is actually saying. Um, so we'll look at the next paragraph. You see Cordovero, right, who wrote Pardes Rimonim. He describes how the name Yodke Bavke, the engraved explicit name, can be permuted into 42-letter name. In Zohar uh, uh, 1.9, Moshe's staff is described as radiating the engraved name in every direction with the radiance of the wise who engraved the explicit name in 42 colors. Wow. So that's deep. Somehow, Moshe Rabbeinu's staff was able to radiate these 42-letter name of God with 42 colors. Whatever that means. it has got to be something deeper there. Uh, the Zohar says the 42 holy letters of the holy name by which heaven and earth were created. Ah, so even deeper, it's saying heaven and earth were created with these 42 letters. Maybe they're actually those first 42 letters of creation itself. But the question is, how do you see them within Yod Ke Vav Ke? We don't know. The way that I think, uh, the way that I understand this is that um, something we may not have known is that each of the attributes uh, also have one of Hashem's names that are connected to it. And so uh, I don't want to say all of them, but the Shin Yes. And, uh, so each one has to do with a different one. And we know that the world was made. We're using these attributes. Wow. So it's they say from Hashem's name, but maybe well, uh, it could be is also by using these. Amazing. I, I, I think this is all possible and I, I think hopefully as we keep reading maybe we'll hear more hints to this but this is i love the participation it's so valuable like i'm i'm just as you know clueless as you guys are but you guys know so much and it's, it's helping me understand that's right let's see when we finish the whole book we'll see yeah Baruch Hashem. i love it so now we can actually start with bereshit uh so bereshit in the beginning rabbi shimon opened the blossoms have appeared on earth on the earth, the time of pruning has arrived. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. And this is in Shira Shirim, Song of Songs, chapter 2. So interestingly enough, every part of that pasuk, of that verse, is going to be parsed by the Bishimon in order to try to understand the seven days of creation. The blossoms are the act of creation which appeared on the earth. All right, so the very beginning of the Pasuk is the very beginning of creation. When? On the third day, as it is written, the earth brought forth vegetation. Uh, then they appeared on the earth. Right? So this idea of vegetation is uh, the, the very first real act of creation, according to this. Uh, sorry, maybe not the first one, but an, an important one that this Pasuk is hinting at. Um, so it's the third day. Of course, we know the third day is when vegetation came forth. Then they appeared on earth. The time of pruning has arrived is the fourth day on which the pruning of tyrants took place. Uh, so somehow the fourth day represents pruning of tyrants. So let's see how that's hinted at. Me'orot, as it says in Bereshit, the, the heavenly celestial bodies that were created, lights spelled deficiently, right? Meaning they don't have their vavim. The vavs are missing. In the, in the word, it's, it's spelled in a certain way without every letter that could have been there. The voice of the turtle dove is the fifth day, as it is written, let the waters swarm with a swarm of living creatures and let, the, let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky, generating offspring. So, of course, that's more explicit because birds and fish were created on the fifth day. 
is heard is the sixth day. As it is written, let us make a human being who is destined to declare acting before hearing for it is written, Naseh Ishma, right? Because heard reminds us, oh, people, the B'nai Israel are going to say later on, let us do and let us hear. Let us make is the very last day before Shabbat, which is a human being. And there is it is written, uh, Naaseh, right? Um, so Naaseh Venishma, we will do and we will listen. In our land, so this so that was the sixth day. In our land is the Sabbath day, paradigm of the land of eternal life. So this is what you were hinting at, Mickey, is that there's a lot to do here with uh, everything leading up to Shabbat. So let's see what the commentary says to try to understand this on a deeper level. Uh, so up to number 14. Pruning of tyrants. Zemir is usually translated singing of in this verse, but Rabbi Shimon understands it as pruning of, the pruning of the demonic powers, the tyrants, or the pruning of humans by the demonic tyrants. Uh, so somehow on the fourth day, uh, this is the pruning of tyrants because uh, the, the me'orot, let's see, number 15, lights spelled deficiently. In Genesis 1.14, the word me'orot is written without vowels, like we said, the vowel letters. Such variant spelling is common in the Torah and affects neither pronunciation nor the plain meaning of the words. This deficient spelling implies that something was missing on the fourth day of creation, a lack representing the potential for evil or curse, me'ira. Right, uh, the Torah talks about the word me'era as you know in in kitabo, in among all the curses, me'era is one of the curses. So me'era here, it's actually making a very subtle and interesting point that what is a curse? It's the lack of goodness. And and when you read something without the vavs there, it's saying maybe that's what the curse is. That it's the lack of the light is the darkness. That's what we've had this conversation. Yes. What is evil? Uh, does Hashem have evil in him? Exactly. I think the answer was that it's the lack of Hashem that's the evil. Exactly. That's why evil, in a sense, is a an illusion. Because all there really is, is this light of God. When you don't see that light, you see something else. But are you really seeing something that's there, or are you just seeing a lack? And that's what Harambam would call Hadad, exactly like you're saying. Hadad mm -hmm. meaning the, the hiding or the lack of the, the light and the goodness. Uh, we will do and we will listen. Spoken by the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. With these words, Israel demonstrated true faith by committing themselves to fulfill and enact God's word, even before hearing the details. So this was like the highest level that man could ever get to is saying, we're, God, we're going to follow you 100%. And then we'll hear what you have to say. But the first thing we want to do is be obedient to you, God. Um, so to me, that's amazing because it's saying already just the word to hear in the Pasuk reminds us of human beings because the purpose of human beings is to get to that highest level of doing things in service of a higher power. That that's why we're here. Like it says, the whole purpose of creation in a sense was so that man could follow in the footsteps of God and and know God in whatever he was doing or she's doing. Um, great. Paradigm of the land, according to the Masechet Berachot, the Shabbat is a reflection of the world to come. It's me'en olam haba. Shabbat is a taste and a reflection of the world to come. Why? Because it's a time when we've, we've arrived. 
this is the time when we could put down all our work and it's uh, uh, and that's why Shabbat is like the land uh, it's this it's like the land of Olam Haba Gan Eden almost also I think alluding to entering yes when we finally get, get there it's the all day, there I'll get you through the Midbar, let's say, you know, and the Torah after like Beautiful. 40 days, yeah? and then and when you have a Shua crosses, that, that was supposed to be a pivotal moment. Amazing. Wow, Baruch Abba. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the miscommunication about time. Amazing, 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 amazing. All right, Hadith. Yeah, by the way, we will we'll spend a little bit more time because we started late. So you'll yeah, catch sorry. the end of it. Don't worry about it. Thank you, brother. <laughs> I appreciate people, it. People are catching on to your live stream. Amazing. Uh, a couple of guys that some of the Carlos Franco's posted his clay. Wow, wee, very nice. And they, you know, they told me I look like Moshe Rabbeinu after you came down from Sinai. But I, I definitely wouldn't go even close to that far. But uh, it's, it's an, exactly it's a nice it's a nice thing people to say. Um, so now we're saying the next part the next party is fun. The next uh, part of the of the Zohar is so interesting. This is one of my favorite uh, um, paragraphs. I want to hear from you guys what you think this means. The blossoms are the patriarchs. So initially it was saying the blossoms are like that, that third day of creation. Now it's saying, no, no, no. Maybe the blossoms are the avot. The patriarchs who entered the divine mind before creation and entered the world that is coming where they were treasured away. So before God even created the world, he had in mind the Avot. He said, you know, they are enough of a reason for me to create the whole world. Um, from there, they emerged secretly and were concealed within prophets of truth. So somehow the Avot are hidden within all the later Nevi'im that come about. That's unbelievable. When Yosef was born, when Joseph was born, they were concealed within him. The Avot, their legacy and their energy or whatever they represent is carried by Yosef, the person. When Joseph entered the Holy Land, he planted them there. Then they appeared on earth, were revealed there. When are they visible? When the rainbow is revealed in the world. When the rainbow appears, they are revealed. Then the time of pruning has arrived, time to excise the, the wicked from the world. Why are they spared? Because the blossoms have appeared on the earth. Had they not appeared, they would not remain in the world, nor would the world endure. Right? So it's almost like because of the avot, because of the zechut of the avot, the entire world is deserving of continuing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be deserving. So we'll see what the commentary is going to say. Who sustains the world, enabling the patriarchs to be revealed? The voice of children engaging in Torah. Wow. That it's continuous... Sustain, uh, sustenance of the world comes from the zechut of the fathers through the voice of children engaging in study of Torah, which is interesting because we have uh, It's a very interesting pasuk. Ronnie Bennon taught me about it at the end of Psalm 8. When I gaze upon the heavens, the work of your fingers what is man that you should uh, care about him? Son of man, that you should be mindful of him. It's exactly this. Why, Hashem, do you even care about humankind? A lot of, you know, kind of capitalistic imagery there. 
that God, you made men only one level less than the divine, which is a lot of this energy, right? And you, you, you gave him this glory. Uh, all this stuff beneath his, his, his feet, you know, it's like man is at the pinnacle of creation. On the one hand, we're so tiny. And then it, it ends with um, this and if you look at Ronnie Bennett's commentary, you'll see he compares the psalmist looking up at Shamayim and looking up at the, at the stars and the heavens and everything that God created to Avraham Avinu going up and looking at the Shamayim and God saying, go and count the stars. And it's literally commentary on Avraham's experience and this idea of is that the covenant is sustained through the hope that's given by the children. Because the covenant is always about three to four generations. That even if three to four generations are going to suffer, or the children will save the world. The children are our hope. They are the divine salvation. And that's exactly what's going on here. The voice of children engaging in Torah. For the sake of those children, the world is saved. Corresponding to them, we will make you wreaths of gold. As it says in Shira Shirim, these are little children, youngsters, as it is written, make two kerubim of gold. Uh, and, and that is a hint at the idea of youth and children being the hope of the world. So let's see what the commentary says here. Number 18. Patriarchs who entered. Six things preceded creation. The patriarchs arose and thought were intended to be created, right? Hashem, one of the things Hashem intended before creation was the creation of the Avot, the forefathers. In the Kabbalah, the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov represent the triad of Sefirot, Hesed, Givurah, and Tiferet, which makes sense that God almost had those in mind before he created the physical world. Uh, those first three, uh, you know, top after Keter, uh, Sefirot. The world that is coming, Alma de Ate, right? Alam Haba, really in Aramaic is called Alma de Ate, the world that is coming, uh, equivalent to the, uh, of the rabbinic word in Hebrew, Alam Haba, uh, the world that is coming. This concept is often understood as referring to the hereafter and is usually translated as the world to come. From another point of view, however, the world that is coming already exists. We've discussed this in class before, that it feels that it's concomitant with creation. People who've had a mystical experience say it's here now, if you're taking that correct perspective. Occupying another dimension. The wise call it Ha'olam Haba, not because it does not exist now, but for us today in this world, it is still to come. For those of us who don't have that perspective yet, it's still to come, but it is now. Don't make that mistake. Even the Rambam says like hell is really on earth, you know. Beautiful. I mean, it says here CF Maimonides, so I'm I'm sure maybe it's maybe that's the one. I think that there's also some element of Olam some element of perfection bewildered. Um, but I think that a big distinction between maybe maybe yeah between Olam Haba and Ayeh Ah, you were telling me this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ayeh could be in this world, but because they say yeah, they say this means. Uh, your mom, Laila, or something like that. Your mom means this world, Laila means next world. You know, so yes. You so I think there's still also something to come. Yes. You can definitely, and, and what it sounds like right, right here, which I love, is it's saying the process almost of the uh, this the, the sefirot functioning is uh, essence of all I'm about. Like, 
Yes, I think part of it also is that once you do get to Olam Haba, you get to look back at your whole life and you say, holy cow, I was there all along. It's that kind of same idea. Exactly. It's like footprints in the sand. The whole time God was there with me and I didn't even know. Like uh, Yaakov Avinu on, uh, you know, when he was at Bet El. Right? This was Bet Elohim. I had no idea. Exactly. That's the thing. The world to come does not succeed this world in time, but exists from eternity as a reality outside and above time to which the soul ascends. Beautiful. Transcends space-time. In Kabbalah, the world that is coming, Alam Abba, uh, often refers to Bina, the continuous source of emanation who gives birth to the lower Sefirah. Uh, the world that is coming, constantly coming, never ceasing. So amazingly, Bina is this ever-giving thing it seems like Olam Haba is, is this ever-giving state of being. Yeah, we're going to end right now. Just two more points. Uh, prophets of truth, the Sefirot of Netzah and Ho, the, the source of prophecy. Yosef symbolizes the Sefirot of Yesod, the divine foul, since he withstood the test of sexual temptation in Egypt, exactly like we said. Upper tribe of Sefirot, it flows into him when Yesod enters Shekhinah. The Sefirot triad is planted there and revealed. Though Yosef never returned to the land of Israel, his bones did. Um, so, and we just discussed that with the rabbi. Last two points. When the rainbow is revealed, the rainbow symbolizes both Yesod and Shekhinah, in whose union are revealed in their respective colors, white, red, and green, much deeper than, than uh, meets the eye. Uh, they would not remain. The wicked would not, would not remain. The voice of the children. Resh Lakish said in the name of Rabbi Yehuda, the prince, the world endures only for the sake of the breath of children in the house of study. So we'll stop there for now. Um, but it seems like the idea of hope and of children has a lot to do uh, with this idea of what the Avot are representing and standing for. Alam Haba has something to do with it. Uh, to be continued, guys, what a pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for, particip for, for participating. Really such a pleasure to, to learn this with you guys and to start a new adventure. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen v'amen. Hazak Baruch. Thank you, Rabbi, for your help. Of course.